Good morning, everyone. Bear with me for a moment. I, of course, didn't rearrange my sermon from last service, so I'm going to have to kind of make sure it's all in order here, or else who knows what's going to come out of my mouth this morning. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Well, uh, Pastor Rick is with the Covenant Partner class, and so I get the privilege of preaching to you this morning and, and having the pulpit. Thank you for that. Um, it's, it's good to be here this morning. I've not been in service the last uh, several weeks just because I've, I've been with our new Covenant Partners, so we're, we're excited to welcome 14 new uh, members to the church, so we're excited about that. Um, but this morning, I would like to ask a question as we begin. Um, it's a simple question. Uh, it's not so simple of a question for me. Uh, just because of my background, but let me ask you, it may not be simple for you, where are you from? Where are you from? Um, for me, it's always been a weird question to answer. I grew up in Germany. I'm an American. Uh, it's, it's a weird question for me to, to get here. Uh, it has been all my whole life. I, it's a weird question for me to get when I go to Germany. Where are you from? Well, I'm from here, but I'm not really, and you know, how, how how do I really do that? Um, I don't know. Um, when I was living in Philadelphia, I lived on the San Francisco Peninsula. My wife and I did for five years, and I was doing youth ministry. Then we moved out to Philadelphia. And uh, the, the question that we got in Philadelphia, and everybody asks each other this question in Philadelphia, is where are you from? Uh, and the funny thing about Philadelphia is that people in Philadelphia who, who live there love to talk about where they're from in Philadelphia. It's just, it's just kind of this weird cultural thing, right? So, uh, you know, if you're from South Philly, if you're from West Philly, you love to say, oh, I'm from West Philly. I'm 42nd and Spruce. You know, I mean, that's where I'm from. And, and, and there's this sort of identity that goes with your neighborhood. Everybody grew up in the same neighborhood. They were born in the neighborhood. They live in the neighborhood. Philadelphia is one of those last American cities where you can actually, if you could want to, <laughs> live and stay in the city. Uh, it has neighborhoods in the city. In fact, um, I, we, my wife and I had moved out to um, Philadelphia, and, and in the first couple of weeks there, U2 was coming through, and we're big U2 fans. So we got, you know, the cheapest tickets we can find. We were at the link, which is where the, the Eagles play, and, and we were way up in the stadium and, uh, you know, kind of in the nosebleeds. And we start talking to this couple, my wife and I do, right next to us, and they, and they start asking us, where, you know, where are you from? And, and, oh, we're from California, and we moved out here. And they go, you moved out here from California? And oh, you moved out here from the Bay Area? I mean, what are you doing? I mean, it's muggy out here. It's, it's you know, the water's not good. That's what makes the bread so good in our, in our Philly uh, cheesesteaks, you know. It's, the water's not good. It makes the bread better, you know. Okay, um, and, and, you know, it's dirty, and there's lots of crime, and why would you, and we go, well, well, why do you live here? Oh, we'd never leave Philadelphia, you know. Um, we're from South Philadelphia. We'd never leave our neighborhood. I mean, we, you know, how could we? Um, and it was, it, it was an interesting question that we kept getting, where are you from? Uh, when, when I would play basketball in West Philadelphia. My wife went to Penn, so we lived right by the university, and, um, and there was a basketball court several blocks away from us that 11 people were shot that summer playing ball. And so they all, the crew that wanted to be safe from that area moved closer to University City, which is where we were at. We would play basketball with them. And I'm, you know, this big kind of white dude out there running around in West Philadelphia with all these African-American athletic gentlemen. And, um, 
And I started to get to know their stories a little bit. And, of course, they asked me where I'm from. And I started to tell them. And they were like, oh, we thought you were a cop. You know? And um, I was like, oh, thanks. Um, and, and they said, well, yeah, we thought you were a cop. And then they were like, well, we actually, uh, one guy said, well, I thought you were from South Philadelphia because that's where the Italian mob is. Right? Um, and so we didn't want to mess with you because we thought you were a cop or maybe you were, you were part of the mob, you know. Um, and, and, and where are you from? That's an important thing. It was an important thing in Philadelphia. I think it's an important distinction for us to think about this morning. If I were to ask you where you're from, you'd be able to tell me probably where your family grew up or where your origin of family or maybe your location that you live now or maybe how you got there. But I think that Psalm 87, the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, helps us understand where we are from in a different way. Where we are from in a spiritual sense. And so, if you would turn to Psalm 87 in your Bibles on page 494, in your pew Bibles, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Your Bibles, your pew Bibles, are the ESV, the English Standard Version. My version that I'm going to read right now is going to be a little different than the version that you have in your pew Bibles. So if you would just like to listen, that's fine, or you could follow along in your Bibles. But again, this is from the New Living Translation. I think it's a better translation, a more clear translation for what we're going to talk about today. So this is the word of the Lord. On the holy mountain stands the city founded by the Lord. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. O city of God, what glorious things are said of you. I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me. Also Philistia and Tyre. Tyre is another word for Canaan. And even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there. And the Most High will personally bless the city. When the Lord registers the nations, He will say, they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. The people will play flutes and they will sing and they will dance and they will say, the source of my life springs from Jerusalem. Well, what's going on here? Again, I totally messed up my notes here. There we go. I may have to do that again. They're really out of order. All right, well, what's going on here? What's going on here with this psalm? Well, first of all, it's a part of the psalms written by the sons of Korah. You can see that in your Bible. Who were they? Uh, They were not a family, necessarily, but rather the sons of Korah was a term describing people who were training to be musical directors in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they were kind of like the Momburgers. Um, no, uh, they, they are attributed with 11 titles in the Psalms. 11 titles they've written. Um, most of those titles are together or grouped in one group in Psalm 42 through 48. This is kind of a standalone Psalm by the, son, the sons of Korah. Now, the theme of the first three verses has to do with Zion. 
So let's look at what Zion means and why it's so important. According to Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, the book of Psalms is a compilation of Israel's theology, theology largely about Zion. Originally, the name of the temple area, Zion, then for Jerusalem, and then the entire land of Israel. So Zion was originally the name for the temple area, and then it became known as the city, and then it became known as the whole land of Israel. So, you see, when the Bible talks about Zion, think of Jerusalem. That's what you need to think of. Uh, for the sake of 87, Psalm 87, we're going to be mainly focusing on Jerusalem. And throughout the Psalms, there's a common theme about praise and adoration for this specific city. Uh, Zion and, or Jerusalem, Zion's mentioned 39 times in the Psalms. Jerusalem's mentioned another 17 times. Why? Why is there so much love for this city? Well, first, it's important to remember Israel's history, beginning with Abraham and leading up to Jacob. God's chosen family did not have a city to call their own. They wind up in Egypt as refugees, and over the course of many generations, multiply in number and become slaves to Pharaoh. Eventually, Moses leads them into the desert where they wander for 40 years. During this time, God gives Moses specific instructions on how to build a tabernacle, the tabernacle, or a tent. That would be the central point of worship for the people of Israel. Also, they would build their whole camp around this tabernacle. Now, they were wandering in the desert. It had to be moved carefully from location to location. And the Israelites were given instructions to claim the land God promised them in Canaan. Fast forward to David, her second, uh, Israel's second king. David captures a certain city ruled by the Jebusites. And again, I'm sorry. Here we go. As recorded in 2 Samuel 5. And this city is named Jerusalem meaning the city of peace. That's the city that David captures. Jerusalem was built upon a mountain of sorts, which, is provided, uh, which provided a high place with natural defenses along with beautiful views of the surrounding countryside. Let me ask you, has, has anybody been to Jerusalem? Anybody? Okay, yeah, okay. All right, several of us have. And so you can see how significant it would have been to Israel after wandering around uh, for many years in the desert, after coming into the promised land, you can see how significant this city would have been that Israel now could have a permanent place to put this tabernacle. Finally, the tabernacle of God, God's people, had come to rest. And you can imagine how vehemently they would have protected this city and how lovingly they would have regarded the city where God would choose to finally rest after generations of being on the move. And eventually, King Solomon, during King Solomon's reign, the temple is built at the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. And within the inner courts of the temple, there's a place called the Holy of Holies. God's Spirit comes to rest in this place, therefore establishing, or thereby establishing, the city of Jerusalem as his permanent earthly home. That's what was in the Holy of Holies. 
And according to the author of Psalm 87, Yahweh loves Jerusalem more than all the other places of Jacob or the lands of Israel. Why? Because Jerusalem was an established marker of his people, of his temple, and of his king. Let's look at why those are important. Why is it important that God established his people here and his temple and his king? First of all, his people. He establishes his people through covenant with Abraham. You might remember that God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a large nation and then asked him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And in faith, Abraham takes Isaac up this mountain called uh, Moriah. And he looks to sacrifice him. And right before he does, God provides him with a ram. And God says, I am going to bless you, Abraham, because of your faith. I'm going to bless you through Isaac with many people. And I'm also going to bless those people, including the whole world, through somebody who's going to come through your line. That's a huge blessing. That mountain, Mount Moriah, that's Jerusalem. So you can see why the people of Israel would have looked at this specific place and remembered this amazing blessing. We are going to be a blessing to the nations. Somebody's going to come through our lineage and be a blessing through the nations. He establishes his covenant people there at this place. That's why this location is so important to the identity of his people. He establishes his temple there. I've already walked you through sort of how the tabernacle and the temple came to be about there. But remember that Moses prophesied this in Exodus 15:17. He said, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Years later, when they uh, put the temple there, we see in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, Solomon builds a temple. And then we see the glory of the Lord filling the Holy of Holies, the temple, with such force that the priests had to leave because they could not bear the weight of a cloud. Think about that for a moment. God's glory was so heavy in this place, was so powerful in this place, it came in the form of a cloud, and people, the priests there, could not bear it. They had to leave. Uh, I don't know if you've ever walked through a cloud, but it doesn't really feel like you're walking through a cloud, right? That's not the case with God's presence. It carried such weight. What was so special about God's presence here on earth? Well, unlike foreign gods at that time, which lived in specific areas like the God of the hills, or the God of the valley, or the God of the ocean, Yahweh would move around. He knew no boundaries. The one true God is not confined to a place. You might remember in Exodus the cloud of fire that led the people through the wilderness as they traveled from Egypt into the land that they were promised. He led them by a cloud at night and a pillar of fire. Uh, uh, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. That same spirit that guided them and rested in the tabernacle Ultimately, this was the spirit that rested in Solomon's temple. God's presence was also not to be made into an idol like the gods of other nations. Why is that? Because Yahweh cannot be contained by human creation. 
Yahweh from whom the earth and the planets and all of humanity and all of culture and all of our thought derives its existence and its nature, chose Zion to dwell and to bless. God poured out His Spirit onto the Holy of Holies. His presence throughout the Bible and the Psalms, particularly in the Psalms, is described as many things. But let's look at what the Psalms describes His sanctuary, His Holy of Holies. He describes, uh, the Psalms describes uh, God's uh, Holy of Holies as a tower in the time of danger, a strong tower, a comfort in emotional pain, a light in the midst of darkness, a place that is better to spend one day than a thousand years. I could go on about the temple, but the most important thing is that God's presence was above all a holy place in this temple. Mankind was to revere it and yet also to be around it, become worship in the temple. It provided comfort, protection, encouragement, and spiritual nourishment. That's what was in this city. Also, his king. Jerusalem was not only a geographical reminder of God's covenantal promise to his people, it was not only the place where his spirit dwelled, it was the governing seat of his people, a place where his king would rule, and the king would rule in mercy, and the king would rule in justice as God's earthly governor over his people. So we can see now that when the people sang praises to this city, when they rejoiced in their citizenship of this city, it was not the material stone and the streets or the beauty that they were talking about. Rather, it was what this city represented. Namely, the place where God established His people, protected His people, His presence, and His King. Now keep in mind, Israel knew she was unique. Among all the gods of the surrounding nations, Yahweh was and is righteous and good as opposed to the deities that surrounded Israel who were selfish and cruel. Could you imagine, uh, maybe we couldn't, that our local deities required child sacrifice? Imagine you were the mother who gave up your baby to your God. Could you imagine you were the father who gave up your virgin daughter to please the God of Baal? That was not true of Yahweh. He actually valued both men and women. Said they were made in His image. That it was wrong to kill. Yahweh was different. He was not cruel. But He was holy. Israel's God, Yahweh, came and dwelled among her in her temple. Israel had access to her God through the sacrifices of the priests in the temple. Yahweh uh, Yahweh gave the people of Israel the law. He gave them instructions by which to worship. It wasn't a mystery. It wasn't, let's sacrifice ten babies and hopefully the gods will send us rain. That's not how God, Yahweh, worked. She had a representation on the earth, her king, the king that God established. This was different than the other nations surrounding Israel. And there was deep pride in the status that Israelites knew they were sons and daughters of Yahweh. Yet, yet, and keep this in mind, at this time, 
the Jews were fully aware that their citizenship and their blessings and their benefits was all predicated on their obedience to Yahweh. They had to obey God's laws to enjoy the benefits of citizenship. So now that we know a little bit about why Zion is so important, why it's mentioned in such a compassionate and loving way in the Psalms, you might be able to understand why the next three verses here are so shocking. Let's read. Again, I'll read from my translation, and hopefully it'll make sense in your translation. I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me. Also Philistia, Philistines, and Tyre or Canaan, and even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. The author writes that God will record or mention or count, depending on your translation, among his people a number of nations which did not regard Yahweh and his law in the slightest. These were the nations who mocked Yahweh and his people. They were the Goyim, the the Gentiles. Notice the list. Rahab is another word for Egypt. What was Israel's history with Egypt? Not good. They were constantly at war. At one point, they were held captive among Egypt. What was Israel's relationship with the Philistines? Remember the most famous Philistine? Goliath walks out and he mocks Yahweh and he mocks Israel and he says, Who cares about your God? Send your greatest warrior and he will fight against me and I will destroy him because your God is weak. Canaanites. Israel always had trouble with the Canaanites. Babylon. Babylon? We look at what the Bible has to say about Babylon. It's not good. And Ethiopia. All these countries at one time attacked Israel. And not only were these uh, nations who rejected Israel, but they rejected Israel's laws. Uh, They weren't just foreigners to Israel, they were enemies. They were nations constantly worshiping their own gods rather than Yahweh. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. They worshiped other gods. Yet, the author promised promises that Yahweh, by His own accord, will one day bring these nations into His city and His temple as full citizens. That's what the author means when it says in verse 5, regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there, and the Most High will personally bless this city. When the Lord registers the nations, He will say they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. That's an amazing promise. Israel knew that it was supposed to be a light to the nations to tell them about the one true God, Yahweh. But this psalm takes that mission to a whole new level. I mean, imagine the promise that one day Russia, Iran, North Korea, and Syria would all be America's strongest allies. (laughs) That there would be no distinction between somebody born in Carmel, California, and Tehran, Iran. A new identity, full citizenship and benefits and blessings for everyone. While some Israelites, like the sons of Korah, would have rejoiced over this promise, as it's described in the last verse there, we know that by the time Jesus began his ministry, many of the Jews shunned and hated outsiders. And yet we see Jesus 
extending his ministry to those outside the Hebrew nation. You see, I, I think Psalm 87 is so striking for us this morning. Because it says that Yahweh will show grace and mercy on his enemies and that he will establish them as his people. He will bring them under the rule of his king and he will allow them, his enemies, to worship him in his holy presence. They will receive a new identity and they will be privy to all the blessings that we see God blessing His people. God's enemies will no longer be known as where they are from, but they will be given new identities. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. Is this not a picture of what God has done for you and I through Christ Jesus? Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God the Father through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would come many years after this psalm was written. He was a Jew, born just south of Jerusalem. He returned there when He was a young boy. And then finally... He returned there for the last time when he was 33 years old. Sorry, 35? I don't know, 35, 33. With the purpose to die for his enemies. Jesus had full citizenship of heaven and of earth and of Jerusalem. Yet he walked into the city where his temple was, where he was the true king, the true Israelite walked into his city and they crucified him on a cross outside the city. God's manifest presence on earth was destroyed by people who had made gods in their own minds. This wasn't what the Messiah was supposed to be like. This wasn't what we were expecting. He calls us to repent and to trust in Him. No, we are self-righteous. We are good enough. And yet, after He dies, after the true King of Israel dies, the curtain in the temple which separated the Holy of Holies, this place where people could not go yet once a year, the innermost sanctuary, the curtain separates. It's torn apart. Because there would no longer be a barrier which between Yahweh, God's presence, and His people. There would no longer be need for sacrifice at the temple, for priests to atone for the sins of the people. Yahweh made a way for His enemies to receive His presence. We see that in Acts chapter 2 when the Jews received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 11 when the Gentiles received His Spirit. God provided a way for you and I to go from being enemies of God, children of wrath by nature, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, to being His friends. That's why Paul describes that all those who proclaim Christ as their Lord and Savior are fellow citizens, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. I think he had this psalm in mind. 
fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Jesus Christ is the new King who makes us his temple by putting the Holy Spirit in our hearts and giving us a new identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. What does that mean for us today? What do we take away from that? I'll just say a couple things and then we'll be done. First of all, it means our identity is no longer in shame but in grace. Um, God put all His shame, all your shame, God put all your shame of the things that you have done, the things that you will do, the things that you don't even know that you did were wrong. God has put all that shame, all the things you think about, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that 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 went wrong. I can't believe I said that, saw that, did that. He puts all that shame on His Son. And He says, you are no longer to be known by your shame. You are to be known by grace. It means our identity is not dictated by our performance, but in grace. Um, achievement is highly regarded in our culture. I understand that. Yet it is the Lord Most High who will establish this kingdom, who has brought you in. I think one of the hardest things for us as Americans to put our minds around, modern Westerners, whatever we are, is this simple phrase. You cannot achieve grace. You can't control it. You can't buy it. You can't outperform it. You can only accept it. And I know that makes some of us feel like, wait a second, are you saying we don't have to do anything? That's not what I'm talking about. If you think that, then you haven't really received grace. You haven't really understood grace. But you have never had less of a standing or more of a standing with God despite the quality or the inability of your disobedience. The moment that God accepted you into His kingdom, it's not like you do things now to make yourself more of a citizen. It's not like you do something now to make yourself less of a citizen. You just are a citizen. By grace. And thirdly, it means that our identity is no longer bound up in earthly titles, but in grace. You know, one of the problems that Jesus continually faced was that people He interacted with saw themselves as basically good people. Powerful people. Important people. However, those who keep the gospel at the center of their hearts cannot help but recognize and will even celebrate that they were enemies of God and they were brought into fellowship with God by grace. Free from the bondage of earthly titles and status. I was thinking about around here, you know, Status and title carry an interesting weight, right? Um, you can ask somebody where you're from, and they say, I'm from Pebble Beach. And it's like, oh, which part of Pebble Beach? The slums or the estate? And there's an automatic title that goes with that. 
Uh, I was uh, playing basketball down at the sports center, and I was talking to one of my friends, and I said, yeah, well, I live in Pacific Grove. He's like, oh, that's like Carmel Light, you know. Oh, well, I'm actually moving to Carmel. Oh, you're, re- you're, you're rich? <laughs> no. <laughs> but there's a title that goes along with being here, isn't there? There's something that we like in title. I'm retired. Oh, really? You're really young. Well, I'm retired. <laughs> that implies something, right? And all those things aren't necessarily bad. I'm not knocking those things. I live here in Carmel. I love it. I love being here. I love being at this church. But let me ask you, is your identity so wrapped up in something that's become uh, not Christian? That's become not of God's kingdom? I would encourage you to remember where you're really from and who really brought you here. So let me ask you, church, where are you from? What did God spare you from? What did God take you out of? What has God given you? Are you letting the gospel shape your identity? I don't know of any other way that we can let the gospel shape our identity in a very tangible way than what we're going to do here this morning. with the service people.